an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. Me Martinez, thanks for joining us. Tension around homeless encampments has reached a boiling point in several communities throughout Los Angeles, with some residents complaining about parks and other outdoor spaces being taken over and advocates calling for more to be done for those who are unhoused. Listen, no one is happy about the situation. And for the council district that includes neighborhoods such as Venice, Mar Vista, and Pacific Palisades, a lot of folks' ire is directed at Councilman Mike Bonin and some of the policies that he's proposed to look at beach parking and other recreational spaces for safe camping spots. Uh, Councilman Mike Bonin, welcome back to Take Two. Glad to be here. Thanks. All right. Now, for those who have uh, not been paying close attention, the L.A. City Council last month approved a feasibility study to uh, look at whether some of these public spaces on the west side could be used for homeless camping or housing. And I mentioned the beach uh, parking lots, Councilman. What, what other spots are being considered? Well, I mean, we start from the idea that this is a crisis, that it's unacceptable for people not to be able to use public spaces, and it's unacceptable for people to be living and dying on the streets. And each council member needs to look in their district for locations. So we're building housing and providing shelter on on, on vacant government-owned properties, and we're looking underneath every corner, which means at property owned by the airport, uh, at at some private property, uh, at beach parking lots, uh, and uh, at, at two parks in our district where there are existing encampments to bring in services and emergency housing and house the people who are there and, and get them into the housing they need and return our spaces to where people can use them again. Your district, Councilman, has gotten a lot of scrutiny and a lot of attention uh, in the last couple of years. Is there anything in particular about your particular district that maybe makes makes it more difficult than others to get people housed or to find the spaces to to get them housed. Yeah, I mean, every council member needs to do stuff in their own district. And in my district, that's a bit of a challenge because my district is west of the 405 between LAX and south of Mulholland. That's really expensive. And uh, there's not a lot of vacant land. There's almost no industrial property in my district. We have used most vacant city-owned properties already for housing that is underway. And so we're looking around. Private property owners aren't stepping up or churches aren't stepping up and saying, use our properties. So we're looking at things owned by the VA, where we're building housing with city dollars. Uh, We're looking at things like LAX, uh, Caltrans, the county, anything that is government owned. And those options are few and far between. So I I wish we had pleasant choices. I don't want to propose, you know, unpopular and unpleasant choices, but that's what we got on the plate. But it's it's important to note, too, because there's been a lot of misunderstanding about the parks. Mm-hmm. There are two parks uh, that we that we're looking at. One of which is the park my seven year old plays in every day, where there are existing homeless encampments. We're not saying turn these into campgrounds. We're saying bring in sanitation and services and security to help get these people housed, so the parks can be used by the general public. Now, your feasibility study. Back to that for a second. How, how will this be conducted, and, and what will it be looking at exactly? 
Uh, so what they're going to look at, uh, the city agencies, you know, the housing agencies uh, and our, our numbers crunchers will uh, look at the sort of the geography of things, what the cost would be, what the cost would be for services uh, and come back and we'll say, you know, this one just doesn't work. It's it's not flat enough ground or this doesn't work because it would be too expensive to do a, a utility hookup or we'll say, you know, this one will work. We recommend, you know, 30 beds or something here. Uh, and we'll see what, what that comes back as. Can you understand why some might say uh, that is more bureaucracy? It sounds like just more delays to, to getting something done. It absolutely is. And what's been surprising, or not surprising, but what we faced in the face of that is people coming up and saying, don't even, don't even do the study. Don't even look at it. Uh, and what I cannot do in my part of town is say that we will not be part of the solution. So we've pushed a lot of stuff in my district, uh, permanent supportive housing, temporary housing, shelters, every single thing. Every single thing that we have proposed has been stalled by litigation or by appeals or by protests. And so my job is just keep my head down, propose everything and anything I can and try to get as much stuff done as we can. And those stalls, regardless of, yeah. of what of regardless of the, the, the pushback and, and how many political hits I have to take to to get it done. We've and, got to solve this crisis. And those things are, are nothing that you have any control over. Can, can you do anything about the delays and the lawsuits or anything? pressure or anything you can do to just push back on that? Well, a couple of them, the state has actually been very helpful. Uh, there were some litigations that were slowing things down and kudos to assembly member Miguel Santiago. Uh, uh, thanks to him, the state legislature intervened and sped up the process and made some of the lawsuits moot. We're opening up 33 units of uh, housing at a converted motel uh, in a couple weeks. And people tried to stop that as well and appealed to the Coastal Commission. And the Coastal Commission said, no, we got to move forward on this. So we're, 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 we're getting help. We just need more of it. And we just need we need fierce urgency to get this done. We got to end this crisis on the campsites. The big push has always been, I think, the overriding uh, overarching uh, theme has always been to get people who are homeless into permanent housing. So why are campsites part of the answer? Well, uh, because right now, uh, L.A. City and L.A. County are housing more people than they ever have, but more people are becoming homeless at a faster rate than ever. So we'll house 200 and 225 become homeless. So uh, we need permanent supportive housing for the people who need, you know, the wraparound services with mental health care and, and, and job training or, or, or addiction services. Uh, but we also need transitional housing uh, and we need quick housing for people who don't need exhaustive services, people who just became homeless last week. We can get them off the streets quickly if we got, you know, a, a rental voucher for three months or if we have a roommate situation. It needs to be a full gamut of things. Why we need emergency interventions like tiny homes or, or, or safe camping is because we can't allow our sidewalks and our public spaces to be uh, but held hostage by encampments. And we can't allow people to be living in the encampments, suffering and dying. We need to bring them to a place, even if it's temporary, even if it's an emergency, to get them services, to get them help, and to get them into housing. Because the second this idea came up, Councilman, residents in your communities uh, turned out in droves to protest the use of, of recreational space for camping or any kind of communal dwelling uh, for the homeless. So what's your response to that? 
Well, my, my, my response is twofold. Uh, my, my response is we, we really have a choice. I mean, we have a choice between uh, uh, sidewalks and, and shelters. We have a choice between housing and encampments everywhere. We, we, we have a choice literally between life and death, life and death of the people on the streets and life and death of, of our public spaces. So we, we got to act. And to me, I don't like the controversy. I don't, I don't like the political hits and the slurs and, and all that. But controversy is preferable to inaction. The second thing I would say to those who say, well, we shouldn't be doing it on the west side. We should do it inland. Do it, do it in South LA. Do it in Watts. Do it in Pacoima. Or do it in Lancaster or Nevada. Is that every part of the city needs to be part of this solution. And each of my colleagues are stepping up and every neighborhood in the city needs to be stepping up. And 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 we here on the West Side need to be a part of that. We can't be exempt from it. Considering the lack of space that you mentioned in your particular side of town, um, are, are you getting the kind of support that you wish you would get from your colleagues on the city council to try and help alleviate some of the load that your district has to bear? Uh, well, for most of them, I have been, uh, uh, for, for most of them. Uh, tomorrow in our Homelessness and Poverty Committee, uh, Mark Ridley-Thomas has been extremely supportive and is a real leader on homelessness. Uh, he uh, is considering a $5 million allocation for a, a, a big, fast encampment to housing program for, for Venice Beach. My colleague Paul Krikorian and some of my other colleagues have been very helpful. I've had one colleague who has stood up and, and, and he's running for mayor and has opposed some of the solutions in my district. But as I've said, if you don't want me housing people in my district, tell me how many beds you got in your district that we can bring people to. And that's uh, Joe Buscaino you're talking about here, who made a lot of headlines with a mayoral campaign launch right in your district. Why do you think uh, he did it there? Uh, well, he did it there because, I, you know, uh, uh, there there is a lot of justifiable anger and a lot of justifiable uh, frustration about the homelessness crisis in the city. And it's going to be the defining issue in the mayor's race. Uh, you know, I think there's there's a couple types of leadership we'll, we'll, we'll see. I haven't picked a candidate yet, but I'm, I'm looking for the kind of leadership uh, that takes the anger and the frustration uh, and use it to solve uh, the crisis, channel it into solutions and progress, not uh, stoke the frustration and, and exploit the crisis. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, for a candidate who is going to say, uh, here, are, here are places where we can do things as opposed to places where we, where we can't do things. But Buscaino could have gone anywhere. He could have gone to downtown LA. He could have gone to Koreatown, but he picked your district. Uh, was there any message you think behind choosing your district? Uh, well, we had just had the the item about the uh, the uh, tiny homes and the safe camping uh, in council uh, just a few days before, so I think uh, that timing had uh, a little bit to do with it. I'm sure. Now, yesterday, uh, Sheriff, but I, I will yeah. say I'm glad the council voted unanimously today uh, to uh, give final approval to 97 units of permanent supportive housing uh, that will be built in my district and hopefully construction will start in a couple months. Now, yesterday, uh, Sheriff Alex Villanueva swept into town with deputies and apparently some mental health counselors who assessed the homeless situation. What do you know about who was out there and what was done and were you notified it was happening? Uh, the only notification we got was on social media. Uh, he didn't coordinate with, with, with us or any of the service agencies. My office and Supervisor Kuehl's office and a lot of agencies in the city uh, have, over the past few weeks, been embarking on what we call an encampment to home program uh, as we have been opening up public spaces at Venice Beach. 
first the handball courts, the volleyball courts, uh, the skate park, some of the vendor spaces. We have been offering housing to people. We've gotten them into our bridge housing shelter in Venice. Uh, we've gotten a few of them into motels. We're looking for long-term housing for them. Uh, we've been doing that. And then the sheriff came in yesterday, sort of confused that process, disrupted that process, yeah. uh, took credit really for some of the, the work that, that agencies are already doing and, and, and housing services that, that people are already providing. We, we welcome help from anyone, anyone at all who can offer housing and who can offer shelter and who can offer services. Uh, what we're, we're not eager for is people who come in and sort of swagger around and, and bring a few TV cameras, try to get some attention, disrupt the process. And, you know, while they're saying on one side of their mouth, oh, you know, we have some mental health counselors on the other side of their mouth, uh, they're saying, uh, you know, Everybody needs to get the hell out of here. Everybody needs to go home, go back to where you came from, yeah. as he said a few hours ago, uh, and and start talking about the fact that you know he's got a couple thousand cells downtown to put people in. I mean, Councilman, he 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 housed at least six people. At least gave shelter to six people, or helped them into shelters, or find them at least. And you call it a cute stunt and expensive taxi service. I get the politics of all this, but isn't helping six people a, a good thing, especially if it could lead to more? Uh, yeah. And, and the people who uh, help those six people uh, are the VA uh, and are the St. Joseph Center and are uh, an organization that I do a lot of work with called SHARE, Self-Help and Recovery Exchange. You know, I funded SHARE to do outreach and services in Venice. That's where four of those beds came from. That, it, it was the organizations that were out there doing it. Uh, it was just happened that the, the, the sheriff managed to, to sort of walk into the photo. You, you really yeah. can't take away from from the amazing work that the, these folks from these agencies are out there doing every day, building relationships, scouring the city, talking to landlords, finding vacant units. That's how you get people housed. Uh, and they're the ones who who need to be celebrated. This, this shouldn't be a, a political uh, 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 pissing match between me and the sheriff. This should be about the people who are unhoused and the yeah. amazing people who are getting them housed. In the situation at Echo Park Lake got a ton of attention after more than 100 people were moved from encampments to allow for a cleanup of the area. Councilman Mitchell Farrell was was criticized for this, but he also was supported too by some people. What did Mitchell Farrell do, Councilman, that you are not willing to do? Uh, well, let me let me start by w what he did, which we we do want to do. I mean, he offered uh, housing to everybody. We're hoping we can offer that as well, and we're hoping we can make sure that it is permanent and not temporary. And that's something that we need to be doing everywhere. It's what we've done at the handball courts, and it's what we've been doing in phases along the beach. Uh, what they what what they did that I did not approve of is what Sheriff Villanueva just decided to do unilaterally: is is come through and start threatening people, uh, start causing people to to scatter away from services uh, and sort of disrupt the, the, the whole process. I'm also not willing to, to shut down uh, the, the entire one and a half miles of California coastline, shut down a business district, uh, shut down a residential area, shut down the beach, uh, which is what we're dealing with here. This isn't like an enclosed space like they had at, at, at Echo Park Lake. This is, this is a huge area, and uh, we can't just shut that off. Um, you, you can't return space to the public by denying space to the public. One last thing, Councilman, we've got about a minute left. Um, what, what do you say, and I'm sure you've heard this, you've gotten emailed, you've gotten phone calls on, on, on this exact question, but just to say it out loud here on, on the radio, what do you say to people, especially people who live in your district, who live near all this, who say that it feels like 
the unhoused have more rights than people who pay mortgages, that pay rent, and that pay property taxes? Well, I mean, the, 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 the first thing I would say is that I think everybody uh, wants the same thing, right? If you are housed and you don't like people outside your house, and, and, and you are suffering disruptions as a result of that. If you are unhoused uh, and, and, and you are suffering living and dying on the street, the, the common solution for both of those concerns is housing people, is sheltering people, is providing people the services they need to turn their lives around. So while people have been standing in the way and suing and protesting and appealing to stop the solutions, the things that both housed and unhoused need are those solutions, are the housing. And uh, that's what we're going to continue fighting for. And that's what we're going to uh, continue pressing for. That's Los Angeles City Councilman Mike Bonin. Councilman, thanks a lot. Thank you. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. All right, let's take a listen to the typical day of a few people helping raise Southern California's youngest kids. By 6.30, parents are waiting to come in because they have to go to their jobs. Good morning, preschool friends. How are you? Good, good. And then it's just like all hands on deck. Like, okay, have you brushed your teeth? Have you, are you dressed? Do you still need breakfast? Round the clock, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop because every parent have different demanded hours of needs of service. You know, after lunchtime, it's kind of like we're just at home. They get some free time. I have kids that are here till midnight, kids that spend the night. So I will probably go to sleep at about midnight and then do it all again. That was preschool director Manojo Wirakun, teacher Maria Gutierrez, nanny Melissa Rivera, and family child care providers Jackie Jackson and Yvonne Cottage. All these women are part of a new KPCC project called Child Care Unfiltered. And you can see it online at LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. It's the latest from our early childhood team, which includes reporter Mariana Dale and engagement producer Stephanie Ratopper. Stephanie, let's start with you on this. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired the project? Well, if you've got kids, this has definitely been a year where you've probably thought a lot about childcare. A lot of parents have been in this situation at some point this year of having to work and take care of kids at the same time. We've had friends, family members, and neighbors step up to help parents get to work. And at the same time, many childcare providers have stayed open and have had to take on extra costs and risks to do so. So we got really interested to know what has this year looked like through the eyes of the people who care for Southern California's youngest kids? Last year, we gave a dozen cameras to early learning and child care providers and asked them to document their lives. And the group includes preschool teachers, family child care providers, nannies, and grandparents. So what did you learn from the photos? Well, first off, we learned a lot about what a child care provider and caregiver's job really is. One child care provider, Jackie Jackson, told us a story about how one little girl she was taking care of wasn't really talking. And so she was chewing on and she was chewing on books. 
So when she, she worked with her every day, Jackie gave her safe things to chew on when she was stressed and used puppets to get her comfortable with speaking. And Jackie does this in addition to cooking, cleaning, teaching kids to recognize letters, helping parents to find resources. When families couldn't find diapers during the pandemic, she offered them up from her own supply. She's been doing this for over 20 years and also mentors other child care providers. No one ever sees this type of the work. They never see this artwork. They just take it as we're child care providers, we're babysitters, however they want to label us, identify us. If people stop looking at us like babysitters, they will see we are the golden nuggets. And even though some of these providers might only care for children for a couple of years in the early part of their life, we know this is when the vast majority of brain development is happening. And so do early educators like preschool teacher Brenda Cruz. This is why I do it. I want them to be successful. I want them to take risks. I want them to learn from their mistakes. I want them to to feel competent. I want them to feel the sense of accomplishment in life. And as a reporter, I'm used to getting out there in the community and seeing with my own eyes what's happening. But we weren't able to do that a lot during the pandemic. Many child care providers weren't even letting parents inside to try and keep themselves and the kids safe. So this was a unique opportunity to see what was really happening in the lives of people caring for young children and their families. All right, let's talk about the pandemic. Child care was uh, one of the businesses that was never forced to close down. Uh, Mariana, what did you hear from providers about their experiences? Well, the pandemic complicated everything. We know now that there were relatively few COVID-19 outbreaks at child care centers, but last year that was totally uncertain. Providers felt a great responsibility to stay open for those essential worker parents. Earlier, we heard from Minoja Wirakun, who won- she runs a Montessori school in La Habra. All this time we were so scared, but I couldn't show my fear, what I felt, my sadness to the parents. We had to put this front, okay, we know what we are doing, we are brave, but we were not, we were scared. For her, staying open came at a great financial cost. To start out with, Minoja hadn't raised her tuition since 2014 because she already knows it's tough for some parents to afford. And during the pandemic, she never laid off any of her staff, despite the fact that enrollment was less than a quarter of what it normally is, and it still hasn't totally recovered. Going forward, she's worried about how she'll sustain her business. Stephanie, was there anything that surprised you? You know, despite all those challenges, the fear, the worry, the disruption, there's a lot of joy in these photos. We see a child running after a balloon or kids playing in water or getting down on the floor with a magnifying glass to see a caterpillar. One of the child care providers, Susana Alonso, took a really striking photo of a group of kids in mass standing around a little girl who's about to blow out a birthday candle on a brownie. Es una nada, este, este brownie y una velita, ¿verdad? She's saying that, you know, even though they're celebrating with something small, just a little brownie and a little candle. Pero por lo menos no está pasando desapercibido el tiempo y ellos se sienten, se siguen sintiendo importantes en ese día. At least the day isn't going by unnoticed and the children feel special and important. And I think there's a lot to say about how child care providers and caregivers recognize this and have been able to create some stability for children during a time of uncertainty. Yeah, and there's more to childcare unfiltered than just photos. Uh, Mariana, what's uh, coming up the rest of the summer? 
Well, next week, we're putting on a live virtual event featuring some of the caregivers in the project. They'll be in conversation with early childhood decision makers in our community. That's including Los Angeles County Supervisor Holly Mitchell and Assemblymember Christina Garcia, who represents an area including Downey, Bellflower, and Montebello. That's happening on June 17th. Yes, and we're super excited that you'll be able to experience the photos in person this summer. We've collaborated with local organizations and arts institutions to display photos at five sites across Southern California. The first installations go up this weekend at Evergreen Early Learning, which is a Head Start school in Compton, and also at the Santa Monica Promenade. We're also hoping that you will share your childcare experiences with us, so using the hashtag childcareunfiltered. Maybe there's somebody that you want to give a shout out to. That's Stephanie Retopper and Mariana Dale. Thanks, you two. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And you can find Childcare Unfiltered online right now at LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Ian Martinez. In Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare wrote, A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, for The Bachelor, there will be another name hosting that rose ceremony. And a film is coming out soon with song and dance spanning from a swimming pool to a beauty salon. And if that doesn't scream summer movie season, I don't know what else does. Time for On the Lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And I just realized this is the last on the lot uh, with Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, hey. A little sad, actually. <laughs> a little sad, a little yeah. bittersweet. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's 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 get going. Like, so back in February, Chris Harrison, host of The Bachelor, got uh, a lot of pushback for comments he made about a contestant's past. Remind us what he said. Well, a contestant, Rachel Kirkconnell, had won the season with Matt James, the first ever black lead of the dating series. Kirkconnell had attended an antebellum-themed fraternity party in 2018 when she was a college student. And when the images resurfaced on social media early this year, uh, she came under fire for them. Harrison defended Kirkconnell during an interview uh, on Extra, and that really, uh, people did not like the way he handled it. Yes, and uh, so what happened after that episode of Extra aired? Right. So that interview was happened in February and Harrison apologized, announced he'd be stepping aside for an undisclosed period. Um, and at the time, he said, quote, I am dedicated to getting educated on a more profound and productive level than ever before. And now there seems to be a resolution to it all. 
Well, yeah. I mean, the resolution is that Harrison is gone for good. It's not it wasn't just a hiatus. Um, He had wanted to stay with the franchise, which he's hosted since its premiere in 2002. Uh, But as the kind of situation escalated, his team was not happy with the way the network and the studio were kind of dragging out the process and the way they weren't publicly supporting him. Um, So he uh, and his lawyer began to explore an exit package. He had hired Attorney Brian Friedman, who's the attorney who represented Megyn Kelly in her $69 million exit deal from NBC News. He also represented Gabrielle Union when she left NBC's America's Got Talent um, and got a reportedly eight-figure buyout uh, for to leave the Bachelor franchise. So all this uh, leaves a host job open. What's The Bachelor and Bachelorette going to do now? Well, the current season, which is actually The Bachelorette, which premiered um, this week, is being hosted by former Bachelorette stars Caitlin Bristow and Tasha Adams. Um, Then there's the summer series Bachelor in Paradise, which is going to be hosted by a sort of rotating group of celebrities. Will John, David Spade, Titus Burgess, Lance Bass among them. You know, you and I have talked uh, quite a bit about what having a, a host, a primary host, a main host means for shows such as the Academy Awards. Rebecca, well, I mean, how do you think this might change the way reality TV is hosted? Well, it's interesting. One thing that Harrison's team was, I think, upset about was that he was taking a lot of heat for defending this contestant in media interviews. And he had sort of seen that as his job, as the mm. face of the franchise. So this may kind of change the way people feel. Are these hosts supposed to be critical of the contestants? Are they supposed to be more skeptical? On some shows, we've seen people who do that. I'm thinking of Simon Cowell, for instance. But certainly the idea that you would be just sort of a a cheerleader for the franchise, regardless of what happens, has been brought into question by the way Chris Harrison um, exited the show. As long as nothing ever happens to Andy Cohen on Bravo... I'm fine with life. I can as long as he is never going to leave that that uh, that whole situation. He's he's excellent. He is very good, and he's also very skeptical. He he doesn't uh, yeah. just wholeheartedly defend the contestants. Oh no, so he's interesting sharp. example. Yeah, he's sharp yeah. with all those housewives. Now we're talking to Rebecca mm-hmm. Keegan of the Hollywood Reporter. All right, summer does not officially start until June 20th, but uh, you can't tell Hollywood that. So Rebecca, how are studios planning on getting that summer box office bump started sooner rather than later? Well, uh, theaters are hoping that Warner Brothers in the Heights will, which uh, opens this weekend, will bring a lot of people out to the movies who have not yet come out. Um, The movie has a 97% fresh score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got a really kind of ideal formula for enticing people back to the movies. It's very upbeat, singing and dancing, um, a lot of young uh, Latino actors, a lot of interesting kind of backstory in that it came from this musical that Lin-Manuel Miranda made before Hamilton. Um, It just seems like a movie that's going to bring people out. And Fandango did a poll of 1,300 moviegoers who are planning to see In the Heights. 96% of them, this will be their first trip back to the theaters since the COVID-19 shutdown. Yeah, you even mentioned, you've mentioned for a long time how that's the movie that uh, gets you back in the theater. And it it did. It turned out to be the one, right? It it did. Yeah, I went and saw it on on Monday at a screening at um, uh, Century City AMC. And it was fabulous and super. It was sort of exactly what I wanted. A really good time, really kind of joyful movie, which I felt like I needed right now. All right, one last thing. Uh, Harvey Weinstein's story and everything that went along with breaking it was now going to leap off the news page and head to the big screen. Rebecca, what's the movie and who's in this one? 
Uh, Universal is adapting the 2019 book, She Said, that was written by New York Times reporters Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, who broke the Harvey Weinstein sexual misconduct story. This week, it was announced that Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan will star as the two reporters. You know, Rebecca, we, you know, you're a journalist. I, I've been called a journalist every once in a while. <laughs> you're a journalist, top, yes. Top three movies about journalists. Okay, Spotlight. Yeah, that's on my uh, list too. Got, people are dressed right. They're wearing bad khakis. That is definitely <laughs> journalism. Um, uh, His Girl Friday, because Rosalind Russell is a G. And All the President's Men, because yeah. when I saw it at 14, it made me want to be a journalist. All the what President's Men is a textbook. It's a journalism textbook. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But my number one, Rebecca, and this is, I got to always be me, even to the end of take two, Anchorman. Yeah. Anchorman. It's, it's Anchorman. <laughs> that's, that's so much. That, that is the best <laughs> movie about journalism you'll ever find. That's Rebecca Keegan, <laughs> senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, thank you. And thank you for everything you've contributed to take two over the years. I'll miss oh, you. thank you, A. Stay classy, San Diego. <laughs> Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to Relate podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.